0: So as I said, uh, the rest of our staff is away uh, this week at the Southern Baptist Convention, so one of our members, Andrew Seacrest, will be giving us the word this morning, so let's welcome him this morning, amen. All right, thank you. Can you hear me? Is this good? Good? All right, Perfect. Good stuff, well thanks for uh, letting me uh, be up here this morning. Like Eric said, my name is Andrew, I'm a, a member here at The Garden. Um, you might notice, like Eric said, uh, I am not Joel. Um, I, I don't have quite as much facial hair as Joel does, um, but I do have a little bit more on top of my head, um, so I'm, I'm glad, glad to be out. Uh, this isn't being recorded, is it? Um, but. Uh, anyways, this is my first time preaching in front of you, and uh, I, just to kind of, just because I'm a little nervous, to lighten the mood a little bit, I had a, uh, a friend uh, who was preaching his first sermon in front of his church, this was a couple years ago, and uh, he started preaching and he was getting really into it, you know, and he's preaching the word, people's mouths are kind of like dropping open when he moves around and he thinks, you know, the spirit is moving this morning. And uh, he, he finishes his sermon, and he walks down, and his wife comes up to him and says, Hey, honey, your, your fly was down the entire time. Um, and so at least, at least I'm good on, on that front. Um, but, but anyways, this, this morning, as I, was, uh, as I was preparing for this, um, taking time to, to kind of pray through what the Lord would have to say to us this morning, uh, there was a phrase that came uh, across my mind, and this is the phrase, and it says, Uh, The phrase is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. This is actually a phrase that came um, from a a writer of a newspaper in the early 1900s. Um, But as I was thinking about that, I was realizing if there's anything that can comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted this morning, it's not the newspaper, it's the Word of God, right? Um, And so this morning, I don't know where you've come from. I was driving home from Richmond last night, and I was thinking how beautiful it is that every single person who's in this room this morning, we're all coming from different circumstances. We all go out into our community, and we all go out into our neighborhoods, and then every single Sunday we gather back here as the body of Christ. But we've all been going through different stuff this week, right? So maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're feeling very comfortable. I pray that God uses this convict you this morning, but maybe this morning you're feeling afflicted. Only the Word of God can bring true and lasting comfort, okay? Um, Just one other heads up before we dive into the text. Uh, We're going to be in Micah 6, by the way, so you can start turning there uh, in your Bible or flipping there in your phone if you want to, but just a heads up. You can't say I didn't tell you. At the end of Micah 6, Micah chapter 7 begins, and I quote the first three words are, woe is me, So just know that's where we're going. It's going to be uh, a little bit intense as we work through this passage and ultimately get to the gospel. Um, So as you're turning to Micah, let me just give you a little bit of background as we uh, are looking at Micah chapter 6. So Micah is actually one of just a few prophets who was actually mentioned by name in another book of the Bible. Um, If you're maybe like a gold star uh, Christian, then you would remember when we went through the Jeremiah series um, for so many months... Uh, In Micah chapter 26, or in Jeremiah, sorry, 26 verse 18, the prophet Micah actually comes up because Jeremiah is proclaiming uh, judgment on Israel and the people actually say, hey Jeremiah, we're going to kill you. And Jeremiah says, whoa, 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 whoa. He says, look, there is this guy about a hundred years ago. His name was Micah and he said the same thing. Um, But Israel actually did repent uh, in this time. Um, We also see that Micah is one of just a few prophets who actually explicitly states the purpose of his prophecy. So if you look at Micah 3 verse 8, you don't have to turn there. Um, He says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So what's going on here? A little bit of background again is that the Assyrians have been attacking the Israelites and the Israelites are being led into captivity but we know that this captivity actually is because the Israelites have turned away from God so we see judgment coming on the Israelites they're being oppressed Micah is watching city after city after city fall but what we see is that the Israelites are actually also doing evil in God's sight the Israelites are being oppressed but the Israelites are actually oppressing each other as well We see that wickedness is reigning among the people who are supposed to be God's people. And so this is what Micah uh, is coming into as we pick up on uh, chapter 6. So let me read the passage real quick, and then I'll pray. So Micah 6 Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. What shall I come before him with? Burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries in the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it, can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness and the house of wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit man with wicked scales with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I will strike you with a grievous blow and make you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve." And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and the work of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their councils. That I make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we come before you this morning, God, and we are desperate, God, for your word. We realize that we are not a people who does justice. We realize that we are not a people who loves kindness. We don't walk humbly with you, Father. And this morning, God, I pray that you would speak um, even through my own weakness, Father. Um, Move me to the side and may your word speak to us this morning. And we know, God, that your word doesn't return void, God. So change us and bring us to Christ this morning. Uh, We love you. It's your name I pray. Amen. All right. So, um, so Amy and I moved to Baltimore about two and a half, three years ago. And uh, if you grew up in Baltimore, you might be used to this. If you didn't, then you probably aren't. And this is the sound of a helicopter. Um, so this is something that, that, you know, some people might be very used to. Uh, Amy and I, the first time we, we heard a helicopter flying, we were like, oh, okay, that's, that's kind of strange. Uh, and then we heard it again, and now we hear one about every night, right? So if you see a helicopter flying above, you, you might say, oh, maybe it's a medevac, right? Maybe they're taking somebody who's been seriously injured to the hospital. Or or maybe, and more common for us, is we see the helicopter going in circles, right, around the city, sometimes with a spotlight. We've heard them, you know, calling out people's names. Um, This morning, before we dive into the text, I want you to put yourself thousands of feet up in the air in the helicopter. And my question is this morning, what would you see as you're flying around the city of Baltimore? First of all, you would definitely see beauty, right? You would see, you know, people sitting on their stoops. You would see kids playing at the park. Uh, You would see people at a grill out, right? There's beauty all around in Baltimore, but something else that you would see if you were to look at Baltimore from this helicopter where you're able to see all of the different neighborhoods is you would see wealthy people and you would see rich people. You would see people who are addicted to drugs. You would see people who are selling drugs. If you were to look around at the different neighborhoods from on top, you would see that the neighborhoods are very much unequal. And if you realize this, you would realize that this goes all the way back to racism and redlining that actually ended up setting up Baltimore's neighborhoods this way. And we talk about it all the time with our One Hope ministry, where you can be born in one neighborhood and your average household income can be a fourth or less of that of people just a couple blocks away. We see the same thing with your life expectancy. If you're a child and you're born in one neighborhood, we see statistically that you could be born a few blocks away and your average life expectancy could be 19 years higher. We see this all throughout the city. We see homeless people. We see abandoned buildings. We see a mess of things. And this all comes from, what do we see? It's injustice. We see wickedness and sin that leads to injustice. It's at the systematic level, and it's at the uh, relational level. And so maybe you say, as you hop back down from the helicopter, you're just walking around, you can say, you know what, Andrew, I don't see that stuff. You could just avoid it if you want to, right? You could just live in your own world, pretend everything's fine. But my point is, is that we can't get away from injustice as human beings. It doesn't matter where we look. It doesn't matter what we try to do. Um, And how we wish things were. So, this morning, as we dive into the text, we're going to see four points um, dealing specifically with justice and injustice. And so, first, if you're taking notes, this is kind of like the outline, if you will. Uh, The first, we're going to see an indictment. Next, we're going to see man's response. And then we're going to see God's response. And then finally, it's going to get personal and we're going to see what is your response, okay? Um, So first of all, we're going to look at um, the indictment. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 first, where God is bringing an indictment against his people. Um, uh, When I was actually 15, just again to kind of set the stage for this, when I was 15 years old, I uh, I had my learner's permit, and uh, I was about to back out of the driveway for the first time ever in the dark. And um, my mom was the person who was in the car next to me, And um, I backed out of the driveway before, totally cool. I was going to a friend's house, thinking about what I was going to do next. And uh, so anyways, I started to back out of the driveway. And if you know my mom, she is a very nervous person. She did not want to be in the car with 15-year-old Andrew driving. Um, So I I started to back out of the driveway slowly. And like this is all happening in slow motion, mind you. And uh, my mom looks over at me very calmly and says, Andrew, hit the brakes. And uh, so I I try to hit the brakes and uh, I tap the gas pedal. And uh, at this point, we're going, like, a little faster, still not too fast, like, it's not out of control, but my mom freaks out. And she just looks at me and says, Andrew, hit the brakes! She screams at me. And I'm, like, in my head, like, I don't know where the brakes are. There's only two pedals. I look down. It's dark outside, and I don't, I can't see. I can't see which is which. So I got, I got a 50-50 shot, right? And so I was, like, I just have to pick a pedal, and we'll see what happens. Um... So, I, uh, I picked a pedal, and long story short, I picked the wrong one. I slam on the gas, go backwards, slam into my neighbor's pickup truck that was uh, behind our driveway. Um, and what, what proceeded to happen from then is they called the cops to make sure they could you know, do everything. And of course, if you've ever been in a traffic accident, the whole neighborhood has to come out and look at you. Uh, I'm 15, so I'm really embarrassed, because I kind of thought I was cool, but not anymore. And, um, And really, what what I'm trying to say is is at this point, I was exposed. It was exposed to my entire neighborhood that I am not a good driver. And it was exposed to my family that I don't know the difference between the gas and the brakes. Um, But my question to you this morning as we look at the first five verses of this text, at God's indictment that Israel is actually exposed here as guilty and called to response, my question is, what do you do when you are exposed. Not just exposed for for some little mistake you make, but exposed as inherently guilty. And uh, Eric kind of stole my thunder this morning because he actually brought this up. But this is a question, what we do when we're exposed, that goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, right? We see Adam and Eve sin, they've been created in God's image, they rebel against God, they have now sinned, death has been brought into the world, and the first thing Adam and Eve are doing, it's not thinking about, oh my gosh, what's going to happen years from now? You know, what, what are the results of this? The first thing they realize is, oh my gosh, we're naked. We are exposed before a holy God, and the question is, what are we going to do? This is a question that we all have to answer as humans. And we see this, actually, in the text, that Israel is being exposed before God is guilty. Um, So actually, um, the imagery here in this passage is actually kind of beautiful and it's kind of eerie at the same time because Israel is being brought before all of creation. We've got mountains, we've got hills, and it's just you. Imagine yourself by yourself in the middle of nature and God is calling you to plead your case before him. What do you say? So if you look at Micah, um, if the beginning of Micah, Micah 1, chapter 2, we actually see similar language, where God actually says, let the Lord be a witness against you. Now here in chapter 6, God is coming back again, and he's not only saying, let the Lord be a witness against you, but all of creation. God is calling the entire creation um, against Israel. And if you actually look, it says, you enduring foundations of the earth. So not only all creation, but all creation for all of time is now looking at you. And your sins and your guilt. And again, the question is: What do you say? What would? It, what if every single sin that you had committed? Think about just ways that you have fallen short, ways that you have sinned against God and against others. What if every place where you've sinned from all of time was exposed? What if the room where you harbor your secret sin, or the workplace where you choose? to cut corners and not glorify God or the classroom if you're a student where you decide you know what I'm gonna cheat here on this test but nobody's gonna notice or what about at your home where you don't love your spouse we see that this isn't just the big sins because we we know when people do something really bad sometimes but what about the little sins the sins that maybe we just try to hide on ourselves but mean just as much to a holy God that we have sinned against right If you're a believer here this morning, if you call yourself a Christian, then you have to start by realizing that you, like Israel, are guilty, right? And if you're not a believer here this morning and you've just kind of, you've come and you're here for one of the first times, you need to realize that all of us here who call ourselves Christians, we don't have it together, right? We come here as guilty people who have been By Christ, And we're going to get into that in a little bit, okay? So you may be wondering, though, as you look at the text, God is coming before them, and he says, Okay, plead your case. He says, you know, you're guilty. I'm bringing an indictment against you. You might wonder, well, what what did the Israelites do? We don't see a listing of charges here, right? Is it really fair for God to to come before them and, and say all these things they've done wrong? Well, we actually see in the first three chapters of Micah, you can go back and read this later, we see in Micah 1 that the Israelites have twisted Um, they've twisted God's word. They have no room for God and others. We actually see in Micah 1 verse 9 that they have, quote, an incurable wound. We see in Micah 2 that the Israelites have no regard for the poor in the least among these. And then we see in Micah chapter 3 that all of Israel, from the greatest to the least, is using their power only to benefit themselves. So by the time we get here to chapter 6, you have to realize, they're guilty. The charges have been laid out. Um so, as we, do, as we see this, though, we see now that God actually confronts their sin personally. So, we see an indictment that they're guilty, but we see that in this indictment, God is coming and he's saying, I want to invite you into a conversation. Um, so, I, I, just to kind of define the word indictment, I've been using that a few times already, um, I could have David come up and give a better explanation. Um, I actually didn't know what it meant before this, and I just Googled it. Just heads up, that's all I did. Um, but a definition of an indictment uh, is it a formal charge or an accusation of a crime? OK? So God, uh, good. All right. <laughs> so God is, God is bringing an accusation against the Israelites. When I had that, that traffic accident, I had to go to court. I didn't get criminal charges, but I had to go to court, and I had to raise my right hand, I had to listen to what the judge said, and I had to say, "I plead guilty as a 15-year-old." OK? But this is what God is doing before the Israelites. He's saying, you need to come here, and I'm going to invite you into a conversation, because God says, plead your case. God wants to hear what the Israelites have to say. My question is this morning, um, how how would you plead your case if God was to ask you? On what basis would you say that you're able to come before God? Uh, The language here is actually kind of similar to Job, where God says, hey, answer me. Um, If you ever want to be humbled, look at the last few chapters of the book of Job where God comes to Job and says, where were you when I created the entire foundations of the earth? This is the same God who is coming here and saying, you need to plead your case. Answer me. Let me know. On what basis are you doing this, right? Um, But we see um, that God is deciding to communicate with him. And this is God's grace, right? Because God could just just say, you know what? I'm not even going to communicate to them at all. I'm not even going to let them know they're wrong. There are a lot of other societies in Israel's time where they had to guess what their quote-unquote God wanted from them. They had no idea. It's God's grace that he communicates to us even when it's that we're guilty. Second of all, it's God's grace that he exposes our sin because if God didn't deal with our sin, we see what the injustice in this text is leading to. It's leading to wickedness. It's leading to violence. It's leading to all sorts of things that lead to ultimately death. But it's God's grace that he decides to meet to meet us there, um, and we see, we see as well that this section ends. This indictment ends with a call to remember. So you see, if you look in verses four and five, God actually calls them back to remember three very specific specific examples of ways that He has brought freedom to them and victory to them, um, and, and He's doing this to show them, hey, you know what? You've run back to slave. You've run back to slavery. He's freed them in the past, but He's He's showing this as a contrast to realize what are you doing now? I've delivered you time and time, and time again. Um, And uh, an author that I I was reading recently was talking about how forgetful we are and how we run back to slavery, and this is a quote from that book. He says, in the last analysis, we know very little about our real needs, about what we lack and what we need. So often we pray for foolish things, when instead what we need is something totally different. We are naked, and instead of praying praying for clothes, we pray for bonbons. We are imprisoned by certain passions, and instead of praying for freedom, we pray for a Persian rug in our cell. This is how we tend to act as human beings. But we need to remember the ways that God has freed us in the past. Um, in these examples, uh, a couple of them, one of the examples he uses is the Israelites, where God literally parted the Red Sea for them to escape from Egypt. Um, and, and just so you know, like God calls us to remember specifically, right? These aren't just general things. God just doesn't tell them, hey, remember that time I delivered you in the past? No, he he names specific people from specific circumstances where he has freed them. This would have been the Israelites' great grandparents and great great grandparents. These are specific things because God moves within history, and He wants us to remember that. Um, and so my question is, and it ends, and it says that you may know, that you may know. God wants us to know what He has done. Right? He doesn't hide for us. He pursues us. So first of all, we see an indictment. Israel's guilty. They're called to a response, um, and so are we on both counts. Um, but next, in verses 6 through 8, we see, uh, we see man's response. And in verses 6 through 8, we see that man tends to respond with empty religion. Um, so right, God brought an indictment. The Israelites had a chance. They could have said, hey, you know what? We repent, right? But instead what we see here is the speaker switches verses 1 through 5 we have God speaking and in verses 6 through 8 all of a sudden we have now man speaking and man uh, is asking a question that everybody's been asking since the beginning of time and that is how do you come before God? This is a question that people have been asking ever since Adam and Eve. This is a question that people who don't even claim to know or care about God are still asking in some regard. Even if that God is themselves. they want to know. How do I come before that which is a higher power? So, with man's response, we're going to see, first of all, that religion, empty religion, on our own, in our own power, always get twisted and ends in darkness. Um, so, for my job, I, uh, I, I drive a lot for my job. I, I work uh, in this, like, territory between Pennsylvania and Virginia. And uh, one day, I was driving... And uh, I was in like rural Virginia, like driving past farms, all that kind of stuff. And, and as I'm driving, off in the distance, I see some chickens. And uh, this wasn't like free-range chickens, like this wasn't happy chickens. This was actually chickens that as I got closer, I realized these chickens are in a tractor trailer. Um, and and I, I get closer and I'm like, man, this is weird. I've never seen, you know, so many chickens all in one, one truck. As I get closer, I realize like they're like mangled and kind of nasty. Like the hair, the like feathers of the chickens are like blowing, blowing off the back of the truck, and I was like, "Man, like that's kind of disturbing." Anyways, I forget about it, and uh, I keep driving. And about ten miles down the road, I drive past a Tyson's chicken factory, and um, in that moment, I felt very bad for those chickens. I also did feel a little bit hungry at the same time. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. But but as I was realizing it, I, I realized that. At first, something that can seem pretty harmless, you know, these chickens, where are they going? As you get closer to a situation, you can actually realize, um, as you get closer, that, that actually that's not so harmless anymore. Once I saw the chicken factory, I realized that these cages are leading to death for these chickens, right? Um, but this is actually exactly what we tend to do as humans and what we're going to see that the Israelites do here because we realize, oh my gosh, God's brought this indictment against me. I know I'm guilty. The question is, what do you do when you're guilty? And what I think that we often do as human beings is we jump from one cage, oh, I'm guilty, into another cage where I say, you know what? I can do it on my own. I'm going to earn God's favor myself. And this is exactly what we see the Israelites doing here. Um, And what they're doing is they're going towards somewhere that leads towards nothing But death. So look right here at verses 6 through 7 with me. What we see is four examples that on the surface look very harmless um, and actually kind of pious, where you'd be like, man, the Israelites are trying. They're trying to come before God. Um, And it kind of gets more and more extreme. It's a little bit humorous, actually, if you look at it. So first of all, they say that they're going to come before God with a calf a year old. Okay, that's good. We're doing something that fits within the system that the Israelites would use for the sacrificial system that God has called them to. That's supposed to go with genuine repentance to God. But we see in the second example, they say, okay, you know what? No, maybe we'll come before you with thousands of rams. Okay, at this point, we've already gotten to a place where this is impossible. Nobody, unless you're like the king, is bringing thousands of rams and slaughtering them all get right with God, okay? But we see it getting even more extreme, where they say, okay, you know what? What if we come before God with 10,000 rivers of oils, if you look at verse 7? will God be pleased with that. Um, and this is just completely ridiculous, right? I-, I was looking up some statistics. There's only 165 major rivers in the world. They're saying 10,000, all of olive oil. It's not happening. Um, But what we see beyond that, though, is the next exaggeration. So it all seems kind of like, oh, man, like they're trying, they're trying, they really want to do good. But all of a sudden, this takes a very strange turn. Um, Look with me in verse 7, where it says, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? When you begin to think about this, you begin to realize how twisted the Israelites' religion has become. Because, you see, we know that it, God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? But he, he, put in, he put an end to that. God provided. But what we see now is the Israelites not being asked by God to do this, saying, you know what? In order to get my own forgiveness of my sin, I'm willing to sacrifice my child. If you're a parent, here, think about your kid. And think about your personal guilt, and think about the way that you would uh, try to appease God by doing this. Actually, if you look at Leviticus 18 verse 21, you see specifically that the Israelites have been commanded, do not do this. Because when you're sacrificing your child, you are actually obeying the religion of the pagans. You're not believing in the God of Israel. It's not funny anymore that they're trying to get to God because now it's getting twisted because their own strength is leading to more death. And it's leading to a perversion of what a holy God has called them to. Um, Another example of this, when we try to approach God in our own strength, I've been uh, reading through the book of Judges. And uh, it's an intense uh, book of the Bible. Um, And uh, in chapter 11, there is a very sobering story. And it's about a man named Jephthah. Um, I was actually doing some research into my uh, family history and realized that one of my descendants was named Jephthah. I'm not super proud of it after reading the story. Uh, If anybody here is named Jephthah, I I apologize. Um, But the way the story more or less goes, it's in Judges 11, you can look at it later, is Jephthah is a judge over the Israelites. He is a mighty warrior. Um, In chapter 11 he actually goes and has victory over many different enemies. He's doing a lot of awesome stuff. And as Jephthah is going, he comes up with a great idea because he has another big battle and he realizes, I want God to do what I want God to do, right? God has already called the Israelites and said, you are going to have victory if you believe in me. But Jephthah doesn't trust in what God has called him to do and instead Jephthah tries to twist God's arm. So what he does is he makes a vow to God and he says, you know what, God? If you give me victory... What I will do is I'm going to sacrifice to you as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my front door when I come back home. Now, I, I have no idea what he was expecting to come out of his front door that would, would ever be a good situation. Um, but it's one of the, probably one of the most disturbing stories in the entire Bible. Jephthah goes out. The Israelites have victory. He comes back. He's going home. Just envision this. He's coming back home. The door opens and out walks his youngest daughter. I just want you to imagine that for a second. Can you imagine the look on her eyes and the look on his eyes when he looks at her and he realizes that he has made a vow that he is going to kill her? This is not the way things were meant to be. At the end of the day, he tells her she has a month or so to go out and he sacrifices her. This does not glorify God. This is the religion of mankind. And any time we try to approach God on our own, we will always twist it. Next, we see that religion on its own always comes up short in man's response. Look at verse 8. We are told here, that in verse 8 it says that God has told us what is good and he's told us what he requires of us. Um, require being a very important word. Uh, if you're a student, you are required to pass your classes to move to the next grade. If you don't, you're going to be in the same grade another year, right? This is something that everybody who is a follower of God is required to do, and it is this. It is to do actively, do justice, love kindness, and walk in a certain way Humbly with our God. I'm going to come back to this, but the fact of the matter is is we're going to realize that we all fall Short of this. We cannot do this on our own power. So we realize again um, Man's response man responds with religion our religion gets twisted and our religion comes up short Listen to this before we move to the next section in Amos 4:21 through 24 God says I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Section 3, we're going to see God's response. So let's keep moving through this. We're going to look in verses 9 through 16 here. Um, So the speaker is now switched. We saw man as the speaker. They're trying to approach God. It's back to God now, and we see that the situation is not looking very good in verses 9 through 16. Uh, In verse 1, God was saying to the Israelites, well, we have now in verse 9... Um, or yeah, in verse 9, we see that God's voice is now crying out in the city. So we see that there has been a crescendo. God has indicted them. They have tried to work with religion. It hasn't worked and God is now saying, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. But we see in God's response that as sin and evil abound, God responds with desolation and we see that that response is actually grace. Um, and so the question is, were they able to walk humbly with God? Were they able to do justice? Were they able to love mercy? The answer is no. And we all know this, right? Deep down, we know we can't do this. We have a dilemma as human beings because to even talk about injustice, we live and breathe in a world that is unjust. But the problem is, is that we also take part in that because we're not perfect. Um, we realize that we are simultaneous, simultaneously both the victim of injustice and the perpetuator of it at the exact same time, right? And so we see here that sin abounds in verses 9 through 16, and we see God's not going to turn a blind eye to it. So earlier God was calling the Israelites to remember his faithfulness, but now in verse 10 we see that God is saying, I have not forgotten the treasures of the wicked. God has not forgotten. God sees what is happening. He sees the injustice. He sees the brokenness. Um, and we see that this city is full, that is mentioned is full of wickedness. In verses 11 through 12, wickedness, exploitation, oppression, lies, and violence, right? This is a dark picture. Um, and we can see that in our own city as well, right? We see that wickedness abounds in so many different ways. Um, you, could, you could pick up the Baltimore Sun this morning, and you could, just, you could just read it, and you could see in any section, probably even the sports section, you could see that wickedness and injustice and sin reign. You could look at the international news and see the same thing. But we have to stop because when I was going through this, I was thinking about it and I was getting fired up and I was like, man, there's so much bad stuff going on out there, right? That's kind of our response. Like, look how bad the world is. But what we have to do is we have to stop and we have to actually look at our own heart too first, right? Don't we tend to go past this? Um, And we see that not only are we guilty for the injustice that we perpetuate and the sin that we do, but we're also guilty because we don't act justly. Uh, James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin. (laughs) Folks, we sin daily. And we have to realize that we stand guilty um, before God. Um, And if you look into chapter 7, it actually talks more about the sin of the Israelites. It also represents the sin of us, where it says in Micah 7.3 that the hands of the Israelites are an evil, and then, quote, to do it well. Um, I I thought that was very interesting, because I think that's something that we also fall in um, as as humans, right? Um, and, And when we talk about sinning against God, we're not just talking about uh, you know, just breaking a small law that, that God gave, though we are talking about that. We are talking about rebelling against a holy God and perpetuating evil and darkness when we have been called to be bringing his kingdom and to be pointing towards Christ. Um, but kind of an example about the way that we can uh, can do sin and do it well. Actually, before I say that, who here thinks that they're good at sinning? You don't have to raise your hands. You don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> Um, the reality is, you can't, the reality is, is whether you were going to raise your hand or not, we're all good at sinning, because we have all fallen short of the glory of God, okay? Um, and and a great example is this goes, this goes all the way back to before we're even like five years old. I was texting my sister, uh, this weekend, I was like, hey, do you have any funny stories about your, your kid? Because like, you know, everybody loves to use a good kid example, um, I feel like in a sermon, like you can't go wrong, um. So uh, I was asking her, and she told me his, his newest thing, and, and you may be able to relate to this if you have young children, uh, is they're, tr- they're trying to teach him. He has a younger brother. He's two and a half years old. They're trying to teach him not to snatch things from his little brother who's, like, very under a year old. And so uh, he decided that he has a little workaround from it. So when he goes up to his younger brother and grabs something out of his hand, and, you know, the little brother's crying, what he does is he just says thank you. Because if he says thank you, then his parents will surely have to think that he asked nicely for it, right? And at least he's being polite, right? But, but here's the thing. We do this as adults. We dress sin up in nice clothes, and we pretend, oh, it's really not that bad. This is just a little sin. This is very refined. It's all, it's all good. But the reality is that it's not, We've got to stop covering up our sin. We've got to stop playing games and thinking this is okay. We see in this passage that it's not okay. We see here that sin leads to death. We see that it needs to be dealt with, right? Um, And so we see here that God actually ends up um, bringing desolation where the sin abounds. Um, And this is actually God's grace we're going to see. I know we're feeling hopeless. We're going to get to some hope in a second. Um, But where we see that God brings desolation, uh, look here in the next couple of verses uh, where God says in verse 13, He says, Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow. This morning, thinking about where you are, my question is maybe God needs to strike you with a grievous blow so that you can realize the desolation of your own sins. God is going to pursue the Israelites here by showing them that when they're not following him, everything is empty. Um, And so we actually see here uh, a bunch of examples, starting in verse 14. Um, We're going to see a whole picture of a spectrum of life and the way that God is going to bring desolation to his people. Um, Another question here. All right, so I want you to think about the best meal that you've ever had in your life. Like when you leave here, if you could have any food that you wanted, um, think about what that would be. Um, I'm, I'm getting hungry. I, you might be thinking about lunch now. We're going to get there. Uh, we're going to get there soon. Um, but think about that. You are about to eat it. Um, Tim Carey and I had some steaks a few weeks ago. So maybe, maybe Tim and I are sitting down and we're about to have a steak. Um, you, you get ready. You dig into it. You take a bite. You put it in your mouth. And, and as you put it in your mouth, you're like, man, this, this doesn't taste like it used to. This doesn't taste good at all. So you take another bite, and you take another bite, and you keep trying to see if that food's ever going to taste good, but it's not anymore. And when it hits your stomach, it's not filling you up. And you're realizing, this, what's going on here? This is a picture of what we see right here in this text where it says they're going to eat and they're not going to be satisfied. We see another example. It says that they're going to put away, but they're not going to preserve. Um, in those times, preserving was very crucial because there were a lot of droughts. We saw back... Um, in Exodus and Genesis, where there were droughts that God had to deliver the people from, but He says they're not going to preserve, even though they put away. He says they're going to sow, but they're not going to reap. Reaping and sowing is a very basic principle that God has set up into the world: you reap what you sow. But not here, God is bringing desolation to the people. He says they're going to tread olives, but not uh, not olive, no oil. Um, this was important back again to the, looking towards the sacrificial system. We see again that they're going to. Um, Tread grapes, but they're not going to drink wine. Wine often was used um, in celebrations, right? Um, We see this imagery with wine and a feast. Um, They're not going to be celebrating. We see here a full picture of desolation that God's bringing. My question to you this morning is what, if you follow Christ, what are you pursuing this morning that is empty? What are you pursuing that is just a desolation, that doesn't satisfy my call to you this morning is to stop. Stop. If it is not in Christ, it will not fulfill you. It will not fulfill you. So, so we saw that God responds, God's response is God responds to sin with desolation, and this is grace. So finally, fourth, we're going to look at your response, uh, just for a little bit of application as we close. So we see here, again, We're all guilty, first of all. We see that man tends to respond with religion. It gets twisted and it falls short. And then we see that God responds to our sin by bringing desolation. This is his grace. Um, And so we see, back to verse 8, let's go back to the call God has given us. This is the application here where God says, I require you to do this, and this is what is good to do. Okay, so we're looking back at Micah 6, verse 8, and we see that we're called to be a people who do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. Um, but first, we have to deal with reality, right? Because at this point, I'm kind of like, all right, let's do it. Like, give me, my, give me my five-step plan for how to be a more just person, right? Or, or tell me, how can I be more kind? Give me some good examples. But here's the thing. We have to realize that we have to start with ourselves, and we have to realize that we can't do it in our own strength. If you're a believer you have to realize that we have to first go all the way back to verse 1 of this chapter, and we have to stand before God's indictment, and we have to realize that God has pronounced us guilty. And until that point, we have no ability um, to to move forward in this. Um, So this morning, before we go on, if, if you are here and you don't know this God, if you don't believe in this God, and you're wondering, how am I going to do this? I would call you to believe in him. I would call you to repent and to look towards him because what we're going to see is that the only place where justice and mercy meet, the only place in the entire world where justice and mercy can meet potentially and only is in Jesus Christ, okay? So we see that there's no hope outside of Christ, right? We saw that Micah nine stated that they had an incurable wound. Um, And and again, just just as to let us know like incurable means incurable like not just pretty bad It's impossible. So without Christ, there is no way that this wound is going to be cured Um, And we need to feel this right we need to feel that there's no hope outside of Jesus If you're a believer We need to feel this as well Because how often do we try to go out and offer people hope that is not centered in and fulfilled in Jesus Christ? There's no hope for my family. There's no hope for my neighbors there's no hope for me. We have to start with Christ, where justice and mercy meet, right? Um, and I, I think I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing, and I was like, you know, I think as Christians, sometimes we just take for granted that ju- the justice and mercy are connected, right? Like, oh yeah, justice and mercy, like that, that sounds great. But, but the reality is justice and mercy do not have anything to do with each other in the world. Um, I was called for jury duty uh, the other day, and one of my friends was as well. And imagine me going before the judge, and they want to make sure you're not going to be, like, biased, right? They don't want you to to mess the case up. Imagine a judge asking me and saying, Hey, Andrew, are you going to uphold justice in the case of somebody who's convicted of a crime? And I say, Yeah, sure I am, but I also want to make sure I'm nice to them. They're not going to take me. They're not going to take me as a juror because... Justice doesn't have to do with kindness inherently. The only place we see these meeting is in Christ. And we actually see um, in Micah 6, 8, we see that we're called to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. We see that all three of these things actually meet together in Christ. So in, verse, uh, in chapter 7 of Micah, right, we see God's justice. We see that he's not going to deal with sin. We see he's going to bring desolation. We see God's justice clearly in, chapter, in that chapter 6. Um, but then in chapter 7, we actually get a glimpse at, at God's mercy. Um, so l- look with me in Micah 7, verse 18. Um, and it reads this way. It says, Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depth of the sea if you are here this morning this is god's kindness in um, the word actually that we see for steadfast love in chapter 18 right there steadfast love that is the same hebrew word that is translated kindness in micah 6:8. this is the exact same loving kindness and the thing is is before we're going to go give this we have to first receive this so we see god's justice we see god's kindness um, but we also see God's humility. Look in the chapter before chapter 6. In Micah 5, verse 2, we see uh, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler over in Israel, whose coming forth is from old in the ancient of days. Right there in Micah 5:2, we actually see a prophecy for Christ who is to come. And when we see Bethlehem mentioned there, we actually realize this is not a place. When people would read that, they'd say, what? Bethlehem? Nobody, nobody would come from there. But this is already looking towards Christ's humility. And we see that in Christ that it says in Philippians 2 that Christ humbled himself, right? And we believe that if we're a Christian that Christ humbled himself to death and death on a cross. The only way that God's justice and God's kindness can meet is through Christ's humility to sacrifice him himself on the cross for our sins, and that is our only hope this morning. And it's only from there that then we can then begin to go and do justice. So now we look at our call, um, just for another second here, we're called to do justice. So first we have to believe in Christ where justice and mercy meet. Once we find that, now we're called into that. So you believe it, you're brought in, and now we're called to act because we are called to be a reflection of Christ into the world. So we see that we are called to do justice. Before I dive into this, just like justice, first of all, is not a conference. Micah 6.8 is not a bumper sticker, even though you might see this and it's something that's quoted. We're not called to be passionate about justice. If you are a follower of Christ, you are called. Matter of fact, it's required and it's good to do justice actively to do justice. And to do justice requires that you know what's going on, right? You can't have your head in the sand and and know how to act justly. So what, what I would come back to is that we need to get over ourselves and we need to get out of just our selfishness, right? And our pride. We can tend to get into cycles where it's all about me, it's all about what I've got going on, and the whole world is right in front of us looking for a true justice and kindness. And we have the answer in Christ, right? We need to open our eyes. Um, Jesus uh, was moved to compassion as he did this. In Matthew nine thirty six, it says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw them, and then he had compassion. And he didn't just see the people. He saw the state that they were in. He saw they were helpless. We need to see people like this before we're going to go and do justice. But we also have to understand God's heart, right? We can't just go do justice out of our own, uh, our own strength. Um, with, with, I work for an organization called World Relief. It's a Christian organization. Uh, we resettle refugees. And so a lot of times I go over to churches and I tell them, hey, you need to be passionate about refugees. There's two ways I can give this talk. The one is to preach the Word of God. But a lot of times when I do that, people don't really want to hear it because that's not motivational. You know, I, I haven't given them some sort of emotional story. You know, I haven't, you know, gotten people to cry. I haven't given them all of these reasons outside of the fact that God has called us to do it. And the problem is, is when we do justice just based on what our emotions tell us, our justice isn't going to last very long because our emotions change. We need to root our call to do justice in the scriptures, right? And we see so many different calls in God's word. And so if this morning you're like, Andrew, I don't know how to do justice, get in the word, right? Um, And then third, to do justice requires, or actually I guess to do justice, how about this? Uh, there's a couple responses we can have, right? So you might hear this and you may be like, man, Andrew, I'm pumped. Like, I am ready to go do justice. Um, but first of all, what justice, doing justice doesn't look like is it doesn't look like being a, uh, a vigilante. Um, does anybody here like Batman? Um, anybody? We got some people back there? All right, sweet. Batman's pretty awesome, right? So imagine if Eric Hill decides to be the Batman of Baltimore City. And uh, it turns out he's like hiding a cape somewhere in his closet or something. And uh, you're walking down the street, and you see Eric walking around on a cape, and he's walking up to people, and like, you know, there's a fight going on. He gets in the middle of it, you know, or, or there's somebody breaking in, and he goes and punches him in the face or something. Right, this is not what we're called to do as believers. We are not vigilantes. We don't just go and do this in our own strength. The other wrong way we can respond to injustice is we can just say, you know what, God? This is too great. Our city's too broken. My neighbors are too far gone. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to sit in my house. I'll pray for them maybe like, you know, once a month or something, but God, it's in your hands. That's the other side of the scale. We can't do that either. We are called to do justice as Christ did, and Christ did it in humility. Yes, Jesus flipped over tables at one point, but Jesus also reached out his arm to the poorest of the poor. In every way, he was always pointing them towards himself as the ultimate hope, right? So we're called to do justice, and we're also called to love kindness. Um, the word for kindness, uh, I, as I said before, is the Hebrew word uh, hesed. This is a really big word. It's translated a lot of different ways, a lot of different times in the scripture. Uh, one theologian says, There may be more, no more significant Old Testament description of how God relates to his people than the Hebrew word hesed. This word really means a steadfast, uh, a faithful and unending love that is put in action from one who is in power to one who is powerless. Uh, this type of love persists beyond beyond sin, overcomes sin, and it comes close to reconcile and bring a reconciliation that lasts forever. This is the type of kindness that we are called to love. Um, so we can't create this out of, out of nowhere, right? Um, and another example of the word hesed is in Isaiah 54.10. It says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love, hesed, for you will not be shaken. This morning we are called to love that, but we can't love that until we have experienced that in Christ. Right? Right? Um, and we can't compartmentalize, right? As, as we think about justice and kindness, we're called to do this, but this is not a call to just act outside of proclaiming the gospel, and it's not a call just to proclaim the gospel out of, outside of acting. We go and we do justice, and as we do justice, the only way that justice can be finalized is through Christ. We have to be pointing people to Christ. So uh, just uh, to close, um, an example to close. So uh, we, we want to check a box, right? We, we, we hear something like this, we hear a call to, to, to live differently, um, and we want to we kind of just move on, we want to say, okay, here's the one area I can do justice, here's the one area I can love kindness, but the reality is, is that we can't just compartmentalize this. This is called to be our entire life as Christians. This should mark us as followers of Jesus. We should be people who do justice, love kindness, and do so humbly, and this is what points to Christ. Um, and again, if, if, you're, if you're here and you don't know this Christ, I would call you um, to realize that this is the only place where justice and mercy meet. There's a lot of people here who have realized this, and I would call you to, to talk to somebody here at the church. If you don't feel like, if you feel like you're guilty before God, we can, we can be freed from that in Christ. Or if you feel like your religion is, is getting you past, I promise you, you are falling short if you think you can do it on your own. So this morning, believe in Christ, and if you're a believer, go and do justice and love kindness. An example to close, um, so uh, a year and a half ago, Amy was running in a marathon, and uh, I run some. I just don't run, like, that long of distances, Um, and so I was, like, pretty excited. Like, Amy had woken up, and she, she was already, like, had been running for a couple hours, and I'm, like, just getting off the couch for the morning, and, uh, so anyways, I, I was going to watch her run, and what you do if you're watching a friend run a marathon is you make some fun signs, um, and you stand a couple different places and like hold them up as people walk, run by. And uh, so anyways, Amy's family was up, and um, we decided to hold signs like right next to the finish line of this marathon. And so like, I created signs. like Mine were all like weird puns and stuff. And uh, Amy's brother, uh, Steven, also made a sign. And uh, we're holding up our signs, and we're waiting for Amy to come, and uh, this this one woman, though, before Amy, had gotten there, she rounds the corner, there's like this long straightaway, and then there's the finish line. You round it, you can see it, you're in the inner harbor, everybody's cheering, and uh, this this woman, man, she just like slow motion, just falls to the ground. I mean, it was like it was like a gazelle like you know, on in the savannah, like being attacked, like she just like bites it. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't like. Unfortunately, like, it wasn't one of those stories where like, somebody comes up and picks her up over the finish line. Like, she like, passed out. She wasn't able to finish. And, uh, but anyways, I'm standing there. I'm holding up my sign, even as this happens. Amy's brother Steven's holding up his sign, and I, I see him like slowly put his sign down. I'm like, what the heck? And I look over, and, I, and he goes, hey, I, I feel really bad about this now. And his sign, he was trying to cheer people on with like, a funny joke, and his sign said, I bet you thought this was a better idea four months ago. Um not quite so appropriate um, for, for this person right, anymore at this point. Um, and my point is, um, like Stephen, sometimes our best efforts to encourage somebody to do anything, sometimes they fail. Sometimes they fall very flat, right? Um, and as I close, I, I kind of want to ask you, where are you in that example? Maybe you're the person who's holding the sign, and you're trying to do justice, and you're doing it in your own strength, and that's falling flat. My call is that you do this in Christ's strength. Um, Maybe you're the runner in that story and and you're you're running the race and you feel like you got knocked over and you're on the ground and you need need Christ's kindness this morning. Your call is to come to him um, because he is the one who pursues us when we are down. Because, see, we see that justice and humility can only meet because our Savior humbled himself And he humbled himself to the point of the cross so that we can have life. So this morning, I pray that we would all end up right there with Christ. Let me pray real quick. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, thank you so much, God, that you are the humble Savior. God, that you are the Savior who came, God, and you enacted justice through us. God, even while we were sinners, that you died for us. And we thank you that not only have you given us um, hope, God, you've given us a relationship with you, but you've given us a call to be people who go and do likewise. God, this morning, may we leave here, Father, clinging closer to Christ, and from that, God, use us as we go out into our neighborhood, into our work, into our um, community, God, that we would be people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with our Lord. Amen. Amen.